Let's come to the word, our focus this morning. We're back on the Sermon on the Mount, and we're back on Jesus' teaching about prayer. And more than a teaching, it's Jesus' command, his non-optional command about how his disciples are not to pray and how they are to pray. In Matthew 6, 5, Jesus says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. And then he rounds it out in 6, verse 9, and he says, pray then like this. And he walks us into the Lord's prayer. And uh, I have very few hidden agendas. I don't think I have any. My agenda for you today, my desire is that your prayer life would grow and that your joy and delight in the Lord would grow through prayer. Not because I'm exhorting you to pray, but because you're spending time with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who loves you dearly and desires for you an intimacy and a communion with God his Father that this world does not know. And sadly, we have to say many Christians and believers don't know, and this is why Christ has come. So it's fitting as we begin 2024 that we do so by hearing Christ's instruction and his commands very specifically about our prayer life. And as we've noted before, for Jesus, worship and prayer are about a disciple's relationship with God as their father. Contrary to the pagans, we don't pray and we don't worship to try and earn or get a relationship with God. Jesus shows that's completely backwards. For his disciples, worship and prayer are meant to be an expression of a right relationship with God and the gift of life he has given them. And that's what sets the boundary line. And of all our activities of faith and worship, Jesus sets apart three at the top as perhaps the most essential activities of faith and worship for God's children. And these are rightly hearing God's word, rightly obeying God's word, and rightly praying God's word. Rightly hearing God's word, rightly obeying God's word, rightly praying God's word. In fact, you can look at the entire Sermon on the Mount, and this is what summarizes it. Now, you show me the pattern of how someone hears God's word, and how they obey God's word, and how they pray God's word, and these three are inseparable. And I will show you the health of that individual, I will show you the health of that family, and I will show you the health and the vitality of that church's relationship with God. What does it say about a family when the children do not listen and follow and regularly talk with their father? And what does it say about a family when the children do regularly delight in listening and following and talking with their father? And not surprisingly, as we consider the testimony and the example and the love of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the three acts of faith and worship that just fill Jesus' earthly ministry. In fact, you could summarize Jesus' earthly ministry. What are they? His faithful speaking of his Father's word, his faithful obedience of his Father's word, 
and his faithful prayer of his father's word. And why is this the case? It's because Jesus is the perfect and holy Son of God. In fact, that's the aim of the Sermon on the Mount, to show us who Jesus is and the life that he's come to give us. He's putting it all out there right in the beginning. This is who I am, and this is the life I give. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is for, so that you see absolutely out front what it's all about. No hidden agendas. And as we consider Jesus, his devotion to rightly speaking and obeying and praying God's word as we walk with him, they are all an expression of his perfect love for his heavenly father. And this is the perfect love that leads Jesus to die on the cross as a sacrifice and a substitute to pay the penalty for the sins of his people. And this is very clearly a love that is not the self-absorbed and self-serving love of the world and all its false religions. It's the perfect love of a perfect son whose love is sacrificial and his love is self-giving just like the love of his heavenly father. And the beauty and the sweetness as you walk through the Sermon on the Mount is you see this is the life and this is the love that he has come to give to his disciples and he has come to give to any sinner who is willing to come to him as their Lord and Savior. And as we come to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shows his disciples very specifically, this is the life and this is the love of his kingdom. And when we talk about Jesus' kingdom, we are talking about his power, we are talking about his authority, and we are talking about his rule. And that's sort of the condensed version of that. Jesus is showing his disciples that the life and love of his kingdom is the life and love of a beloved child of God. And the good news of Jesus Christ is this is the life and this is the love and this is the kingdom that Jesus personally gives. And this is the life and the love and the kingdom that Jesus is calling all men to. It's not another kingdom. This is the kingdom he's calling them to. The kingdom of his father's life and the kingdom of his father's love. No ambiguity. And he calls men to this one way by submission and following him by faith as our Lord and as our King. And what's the proof of such faith and such following and such submission? Right hearing, right obeying, and right praying Jesus' words. It's really the standard. We can tell that. I tell my boys, how do you go to a church? When you grow up, I want to get them ready for college. And you go in and you can tell. How can you tell? Should you stay at this church or should you run as fast as you can? Over time, do you see? Do they hear Jesus as Lord and King? Not as a friend or a coach or a motivational pep talk. Do they obey Jesus as King? Okay, he says do it, we do it. Are they able to pray like Jesus 
in good times and bad. And this we look to because this is a gift that only Jesus can give. And our big truth for this morning is that Matthew 5 and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, is the life and love of a beloved child of God. When you read through the Sermon on the Mount, that's what you're looking at. This is the life, this is the heart, this is the attitude, these are the relationships, these are the activities of a beloved child of God, a child of God who is loved by God as their Heavenly Father. And within this, in the middle portion, which is one of the biggest sections that Jesus devotes his time to, big priority for Jesus, the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is the prayer of a beloved child of God. That's what you're looking at. And this is what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples when he teaches them how to pray. If you have your Bibles, please have a look at Matthew chapter 5. And what I'm going to do since we're starting the year and I've been away for a little bit from the pulpit is we're going to read the beginning and then I'm going to read specific sections of the Sermon on the Mount. They're called hinge passages, the passages that sort of summarize what's gone before and get us ready for what comes. And we're going to provide for you, hopefully this morning as we do this, the context so we can understand the context of the Lord's Prayer and Jesus' instruction on prayer. Matthew 5.1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now I'm going to get you to drop down with me to 517. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now drop with me, if you will, down to 548, the end of chapter 5, and we'll do 548 and 6.1. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now drop with me down to verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, 
hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the prayer of our Lord and this is his word. Brothers and sisters, there's few better ways to start the year than hearing Jesus speak into our lives and to do so in and through his prayer and his Sermon on the Mount. And as we hear that word Sermon on the Mount, just to set the context, it's helpful. And it's a helpful title. And it's helpful to know the history that that term or title Sermon on the Mount was first written by St. Augustine. Augustine of Hippo, which is Algeria, North Africa. And that's a title that he gave in reference to Matthew chapter 5 through 7 to the God-breathed words that we find there from our Lord and Savior. And it's a helpful title in as much as it gives for us or lays for us the biblical context of Jesus' words in Matthew 5 through 7, speaking on a hill or a mountain in Galilee to his disciples. But today, a sermon is defined as a church talk on a religious or moral subject. And a sermon, as we define it today, is at best a reference to a faithful explanation or exposition of God's word. And at its worst, it's a reference to a poor attempt at entertainment, a motivational pep talk, or a long and tedious rant. And it's what sermons have become today, and it's kind of how we think of them. But I hope as you were listening to Matthew 5 through 7, the good news of these words is that Jesus' words are anything but a sermon by today's standards. And this was obvious to everybody who heard these words on that mountain in Galilee 2,000 years ago. As you come to the very end of the sermon, Matthew 7, 28, Matthew writes, the crowds were astonished at Jesus' teaching. Why? Well, Matthew explains it's because of the authority of these words. And this, brothers and sisters, is what sets apart Jesus. This is what sets apart his life. This is what sets apart his teaching. This is what sets apart his words from everyone and everything else. It is the authority of heaven. It is the authority of God. Jesus is not speaking these words as a preacher or a pastor. He is speaking these words as the Messiah, God's anointed king. And he is speaking these words as the holy son of God. And he is specifically speaking these words to his disciples, those whom he has called, those he has chosen to follow him, those who have repented and left everything by faith to enter into his kingdom. And I say this before we come to his instruction on prayer, because to ignore Jesus' divine authority is to ignore Jesus, it's to ignore his kingdom, and it's to ignore his word. 
Matthew 5 through 7, including Jesus' instruction on prayer, is Jesus' divine and authoritative declaration to his disciples about what their new life in his kingdom is and what it is to be. It is, if you will, Jesus' divine declaration of independence. What happened in the American Declaration of Independence? They wrote a letter, the Founding Fathers, and they said, hey, there's a new boss, there's a new king, it's not the King of England, and there's a new set of rules. It's a democracy, it's not a monarchy or a totalitarian dictatorship. And here, Jesus is making a declaration to his disciples, those who have left everything to follow him into his kingdom, and he's letting them know, with me, you are now completely separate from the power and authority and rule of darkness, sin, and death in this world. You are now independent of that because I am your king. And the power and authority and rule over your life now belongs to me. And if you belong to me, and if you are part of this kingdom, and if you are with me, then this is what your life is going to look like. This is what it is, and this is what it is to be. What I love about our Lord and Savior, no hidden agendas. He lets everyone know right up front what his life is all about. And what is this life that he has put before them? It is nothing less than his life. If you are following Jesus, if your desire is to enter into his kingdom, newsflash, your life is and is to be like Jesus. And as Jesus walks it through for this, he points out this is the life of a beloved child of God. And by extension, our prayer life is to be the prayer of a beloved child of God. Our worship is to be the worship of a beloved child of God. Our work is to be the work of a beloved child of God. Our marriages and our parenting are to be the marriages and parenting of a beloved child of God, not like the world who worships many gods and live lives of being enslaved by the tyranny of the many gods of this world. Jesus' point is that his authority and his power and his rule is our freedom. Our freedom to know and walk in God's love rather than the love of this world. And so, brothers and sisters, that raises a question for us. Are you a child of God? Is Christ your king? As we begin this new year, it's helpful to look at an inventory of us and we have to look at our church, your pastor. If we profess the name of Christ, are you and I and all we have completely submitted to Christ and his word? And if the answer is yes, so we come to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus points out, then he is going to make demands on your life. And he has the right to do so because your life 
belongs entirely to him because he is your king, he is good and he is right, and our lives need to change. And this, brothers and sisters, if you're a sinner, is really good news. And this, brothers and sisters, is what Jesus does right from the beginning in Matthew 5 through 7. And this brings us to our first point. Jesus demands the righteous prayer of his kingdom. Now, it's politically incorrect in America today, and especially in churches, to make demands of people. We're free to do whatever we want. Not if Christ is your king. Not if you're a child of God. I had a friend who discovered early in his relationship with his wife that his wife's unbelieving family had a very unhealthy controlling influence in her life, especially in the area of her finances. And when the family wanted money, they asked her for it with the expectation that that money was already theirs. Now, by God's grace, what was brought to bear as the two became one in marriage was that first, the first and final say in everything, including their finances, now belonged to Christ and not this young lady's family. And because of the lordship of Christ in their marriage, because there was a new king, there was a new rule, and there was a new standard of right and wrong for their marriage and for their life. And this new rule and righteousness of Christ was both a demand, but it was also Christ's protection for their lives and for their marriage with Christ and with one another. Now, brothers and sisters, that's a lesson we all need to learn. And that's a lesson many of us are still learning. First and last, Christ is our king. And that is a protection and a freedom and a gift for a purpose Jesus gives it so that we can enjoy his holy love. And brothers and sisters, too often our controlling influence is our fallen expectations, our fallen experiences, our fallen desires, and our fallen feelings. That's also known as the flesh. And those who are newly married, you know how that works during the first years of marriage, that the standard is, why does she do the dishes this way? Why is the AC turned up to this? Why, I mean, the heat, why is the AC turned down to this? Did you, you know, how does this work? And you look back at that and you realize in those early days, all of those things, those norms, they're all based on our experience or what we think is right. The good news of Jesus Christ is he brings his people in by love and by grace and says, look, there's a new standard of right and wrong. It's not yours and it's not yours, it's mine. And it's built on my blood, and it's built on my life, and it's built on my forgiveness, and it's built on my grace. And this is to be the foundation and unity of your marriage, your parenting, your life, your church. And brothers and sisters, until we die to that and come to that and are willing to surrender to that, we're going to be stuck in that loop of my, he doesn't meet my expectations, she doesn't meet my feelings, why is it this? And we circle and circle and circle and circle. And from the beginning, in Matthew 5, 
Jesus makes it clear to his disciples, this way of living, this way of praying, this way of worshiping is the self-serving standard of right and wrong of the world. My experiences, my desires, my feelings, and this is what rules our lives and this is what ruins our lives. And the good news of Matthew 5, Jesus shows us is as their new king, he gives and he demands a completely new righteousness and a completely new standard of right and wrong that is infinitely different from the world and its righteousness. You must be perfect even as your heavenly father or your father in heaven is perfect. And this is how Jesus loves us. This is how he protects us. This is how he sets us free from the control and the exploitation of our world and our flesh and our sin by leading us into his kingdom with him as king. He's giving us a new standard of right and wrong that begins with God, not us. And it begins with God as our heavenly father. And it begins with Christ's love and sacrifice and the gift of his righteousness. And in Matthew chapter 5, this is what Jesus is applying to the hearts and the lives and the relationships of his disciples. Every aspect is now to come under this gift of his righteousness and this new standard of right and wrong that is built on the truth and love of God. And as we come to Matthew 6, this is the standard that Jesus applies to the disciples' worship to their giving and their prayer and their fasting. How are we to give? We're to give like God, with his heart of love and compassion for those in need. How are we to pray? We're to pray like Jesus, like a beloved child of God. And Jesus, in Matthew 6, 5 through 8, shows us this is completely contrary to the world. In verse 5, he says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Here Jesus points out in the worship of the world how it is ultimately self-absorbed, self-serving, and self-deceived. My needs, my issues, my problems, how am I going to get this? And if I do it this way or I do it that way, I'm going to get what I want. And what is Jesus commanding? He says his disciples must never be self-absorbed, self-serving, and self-deceived like the world. Why? Because their king is now the holy son of God. And his father is now their father. And his life is now their life. And his love is now their love. And his prayer is now their prayer. And what is this prayer? It is the personal, the simple, the intimate, the transparent, and the assured 
holy communion of a beloved child of God with a sovereign and loving father who knows what his children need before they even ask. Brothers and sisters, this is the righteous prayer of Christ's kingdom. This is the prayer that Jesus demands of his disciples because this is the righteousness and love he has given. And this is the prayer he demands of his disciples because it is essential to the life of all God's children. And this brings us to our second point this morning. Jesus' kingdom prayer is an essential part of his kingdom life. Jesus is showing that prayer in his kingdom is about fellowship and communion and walking in God's love. It's not first and foremost building a world around my worries and my needs and getting what I want. Yes, we need to come to the Lord with our concerns and we're going to get to that. Yes, we need to come to him daily for what we need and we're going to get to that. But when that becomes the focal point of our prayers, brothers and sisters, we can't even see God because all we can see is our issues and our problems. And God's desire for us, and he sent his son to deliver us from our issues and our problems, chief among them, our self-absorption and self-deception, so that we can begin to see the beauty and goodness of how much he loves us in Christ. As my boys grow up in a fallen world, there's no shortage of competition for their hearts. We're seeing this increasingly. There's just more and more stuff that is vying for their attention. Truth be told, time with dad is hardly as entertaining as Xbox or basketball or the Avengers or their friend's drama, whatever that is for a 10 or 12-year-old, right? But brothers and sisters, I love my boys. And I know my love is better than all that stuff. And I know all that stuff ultimately is designed to take their time and take their money and fill someone else's bank account. And I know that there are a few things that are more essential and more necessary to a growing child than time together with a father who loves them. So I demand that we eat together. And I demand that we walk together. And I demand that we take trips together. And I demand that we go to church together. And I demand that we pray together. Does that save my children? No, it doesn't. And I say this not as a model. I'm using this as an illustration, brothers and sisters, because I got plenty of shortcomings as a dad. I'm saying this as an illustration to point us to what's necessary in a relationship with our Heavenly Father. What He does and how He pursues you, but also what he calls us to as well. And in a conversation I recently had with my boys, I said, look guys, all fun, but you too have to take initiative and value your time with your dad. Because if you don't value 
my time with you more than your electric scooter, your buddies on the street, all of those different things, then where are we going to be? And how much time are you going to have learning about our love for one another and our love for the Lord? We use this, brothers and sisters, as an illustration that time together is a battle. And Jesus highlights this. It is a battle with our flesh. It is a battle with the world. It is a battle with the devil. And it is not easy. But what does it say about any relationship where there is no time together and we do not know how to speak to one another? And how long can we go without our Father's love? And as we think of this simply as an illustration, what does it say, brothers and sisters, about our priority for prayer in our lives and our relationship with God? How does Jesus love his disciples? As their king, he demands that time with our Heavenly Father in prayer be an intentional priority, a must of daily life. And as we've noted before, Jesus never says to them, if you pray as if prayer is optional. Not once, but three times. Verse 5, verse 6, verse 7. When you pray, when you pray, when you pray. And Jesus' expectation is clear. In his kingdom, his disciples are always to be praying to their heavenly Father. And in verse 11, the implication of give us this day our daily bread is that we need God's love and we need his help for the most basic necessities of life. Not once a week, brothers and sisters. Not once a day even, but this idea of daily, every step of the way. And the place it begins is it begins first. New Testament Scholar Charles Quarles writes, Jesus commanded his disciples to pray. And so failure to pray is an act of disobedience to the Savior. And when Jesus commands his disciples in verse 6, to go into your room and shut the door and to pray to your Father, Jesus is showing them and us the necessity of a disciple's initiative of faith by faith, the intentionality and also the effort and the struggle to go against the world, to go against our flesh, to go against what people think, to find personal and private time for fellowship and communion with God on his terms, not ours. Now, as we walk through and we come to the Lord's Prayer, he says, our Father, and he shows that there is a place both for our personal private prayer, but coming together as a family to pray together as well. They are both there and they are both essential and they are both needed. But you can't have one and not the other brothers and sisters. You can't gather together at a family dinner table and then never spend time alone with your wife. You can't spend all your time alone with your wife and you never get together with the family. They both have their place. They are separate, but they are connected. God forbid if I went out and took Julie out for her anniversary and I invited you all. 
not welcome. And if you end up in the same restaurant with me, not welcome. I'll find another restaurant, you can stay there. Right? And Jesus is teaching. I want you to see this. He's making commands. They are hard. Not to do them is disobedience. But do you know why he's doing it? It's because he loves you and he knows the propensity of our flesh and the propensity of the world and the distractions that are there. And he is protecting us. And he is protecting us for his love. And he shows us, as he says, you've got to get in there in this private place and go against the world and go into the private place and shut the door and be there. He's showing us that prayer and time with our Heavenly Father will always be a battle on some level and it will always be costly. It's going to be a sacrifice. There are things you are going to have to give up to spend time alone with your Father in prayer. If you're not married yet, you're going to realize there's things you're going to have to give up to spend time alone with your spouse. There's things that you're going to have to give up to spend time alone with your kids. You can't have it all. So you're going to have to choose what's most important, what's the priority, and what makes it all tick. It is costly. And the cost to our Heavenly Father was His Son. And the cost to Jesus was His life. And the question is, was it worth it? Well, for Jesus, the answer was and is clearly yes. Why? Because our sin is great, but his love for us is greater. And Jesus' kingdom prayer is essentially the life of the believer because his prayer is essentially the gospel. And that brings us to our final point this morning. Jesus' kingdom prayer is the prayer of his gospel. What is the gospel? We say this, and Kevin, I believe this morning exhorted us that it wouldn't be just some mantra, but that it be something that we actually believe and live. The good news of what God has done by the power of his Holy Spirit to save sinners through the life and death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, according to his word. Well, what does that all mean, brothers and sisters? That sounds great. We say it repeatedly. It means, if it's true, that we're no longer children of this world, but we are now the beloved children of the creator and sovereign ruler of this world. It means that we have a new life and love, the life and love of Jesus and the life and love of a beloved child of God. And so Jesus is just saying, hey, live it and pray it. And when in verse 9, Jesus commands and teaches his disciples, when he says, pray then like this, this is the gospel. This is the life and love and fellowship he's bringing his disciples into. Now let me say this, I do believe that we should teach our children the Lord's Prayer, which is what follows. And I do believe everyone would benefit from knowing this prayer by heart. But Jesus does not say, pray this. He doesn't say, pray these words. He says, pray then like this, or pray then this way. And very clearly, Jesus didn't give us this prayer to be a mindless repetition or a pagan ritual. He's given this to us as a model and a guide to show disciples how we are to walk in the Father's love as children 
and beloved children. And it's in this way, this prayer is really an expression and an outline of the entirety of the gospel life. As you walk through the Lord's Prayer, you see he's walking us through step by step by step the Father's love for us that covers the entirety of a believer's life here in this fallen world until Christ comes again. It's what bridges the gap. And what is it, brothers and sisters, that bridges the gap from our new life in Christ until Christ comes again? It's the Father's love for us in Christ. And where does this prayer begin? As Jesus says, this is the way, this is the model, this is the way in which you walk in your Father's love. Where does this prayer begin? Does it begin with my needs? Does it begin with my sin? Does it begin with my failures? Yes, we're going to get there. Hi, my name is Mark. I'm an alcoholic. And that's how sometimes many of our sharing and prayers, we get together and we identify who we are and what all our problems are. Well, listen, there's a place to address our problems, but our problems will never be addressed unless we begin where the gospel begins and we begin where the Lord's prayer begins. Where does it begin? It begins with our heavenly Father's perfect love for his children. Our Father who is in heaven. And one New Testament scholar rightly noted, with these words, the whole miracle of divine grace is summed up. Our Father who is in heaven, the summation that we, enemies of God, rebellious and hardened sinners, should be redeemed from a life and a world of idolatry and sin, that we would be forgiven, that the price would be paid in full, that we would be justified, that we would be declared to be righteous, that we would be reconciled with the holy God, with a righteousness that's not ours, that we would be adopted and made his beloved children, not because of anything we did, but because of the cross and because of Christ. And now we are able to go directly to him. No Virgin Mary, no human mediator, not John MacArthur, not John Piper. We are able to go directly to him with confidence and speak to him and call him by name, our Father who is in heaven. And we are able to do so, our Father, as part of the same family, with every other child of God who has been forgiven and saved by God's grace. United with the Lord, united with one another by the cross and by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace because his blood has brought us near. And brothers and sisters, this is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news of the life that we live, and this is the good news of the fellowship and communion we have with God by faith for those who come to Jesus as their Lord and King and have submitted to his authority and power. And as you walk through, and we're going to go through this next week, but as you walk through, you see it begins with God's gift of grace, the gift of his fatherhood. And as you walk through, Sinclair Ferguson has identified five gifts and five priorities of God's love that are given. 
And these are meant to cover the entirety of our life. It begins with God's fatherhood and his worship. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And being part of the holiness of God, it continues with the Father's will and his kingdom. This is God's gift to you. You have a new purpose and plan for your life. His will, not your old will. The Father's care and sustenance give us this day our daily bread. That each day we are dependent on the Lord to provide for us what we need because he's my dad. The Father's grace and forgiveness. His gift to us. That we're able to forgive others in the way that he has forgiven us. And finally, the Father's protection against all the evil and ugliness in this world. And what is he protecting? Our love with him. I may die. I may get shot. I may get whatever. But my relationship with the Father will never change because of Christ. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. Not life, not death, not heaven, not hell, not anything can separate me from the love of God. And his protection to the Father for what's most important. My unity with him in Christ. And brothers and sisters, the fact that Jesus teaching and his command on prayer comes right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is showing us this is central. But it's never, ever, ever separated from who Jesus is and what he does. And if we never rightly hear Jesus as king, we will never obey his word rightly. And if we never obey his word rightly, we will never pray like Jesus. And dare I say, we may never know the fullness of what it means to walk in the Father's love. Because that's what Jesus is showing us in this prayer. How complete and how perfect and how comprehensive and how sovereign God's love is for his children where every aspect of your life in his kingdom is taken care of by the Father. Well, where does this leave us, brothers and sisters? First, we've got to consider it begins with repentance and faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you do not know him, this prayer is not for you. Leon Morris writes that this prayer of the Lord in the early church was confined to the use of full members of the church. It was part of baptismal instruction. So if you were a visitor or you came or you had not been baptized, which was your entrance into membership, you were prohibited from saying this prayer in church. Why? Because this is the prayer of a child of God. But the good news, brothers and sisters, is if we indeed are following Christ, if we have submitted and turned from the world and placed our life in his hands, this prayer is for us. So could I have my final slide? I tricked you, right? You thought the uh, final point was the final teaching. The exhortation as we walk through, as we come to this new year, how can we grow in our prayer life? Maybe another way of saying it is, how can we grow in our Father's love? Number one, it isn't gonna happen unless we're intentional in loving and listening to Jesus as our king. The authority of his word, what he says is true, but it is the authority of our king. 
Number two, intentional submission and obedience by faith. If we take his word seriously for what it is, we can't do anything but either obey it or reject it. No two way, no other way, there was only two ways. And then intentionally and regularly, in private and together, praying to God as our Heavenly Father. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, if you hear Jesus' word for what it is, and your heart is convicted and say, okay, I need to obey this, whatever he's calling you to obey, you can't help but getting on your knees and praying. I can't do it without him. I'm convicted. I am sinful. I have fallen short. I need his love. I need his grace. I need his help every minute and every moment. And without it, I am lost. But with it, I am a beloved child of God walking in his love. And to help us, uh, give us an appreciation, Jesus gives us, because the Pharisees didn't get it, the parable of the prodigal son. And you see with the prodigal son, how much is he enjoying his father's love when he's in the pigsty? He remembers it, but he's not experienced. Does his father still love him? Absolutely. Is he walking in his father's love and experiencing it? No, that's why he hightails it back. In my father's house, even the servants are well taken care of. That's repentance, brothers and sisters. So why do we not experience this fellowship and love? Well, if you're sitting in the pigsty, brothers and sisters, you ain't gonna experience that love. Doesn't mean God doesn't love you. But the call to return to the Lord, and what does the father do as he comes back? Puts a robe on him, embraces him, puts a ring on his finger, has a meal. And that, brothers and sisters, is the sweetness and joy and fellowship of communing with our Heavenly Father, and that's the sweetness of prayer. When we come to Him as repentant sinners and we let go of our gods and we let go of our sins and we come to Him on His terms, He puts a ring on our finger. He clothes us with robes of righteousness. He puts food on our table and He embraces us as His children. But there's another son the son who's born and raised in the house and never left. Those are like us who have been in the church forever, right? We know the prayer. We know how to recite the Lord's Prayer. We know how to do whatever. And that son is also angry with the father. And guess what? He's in the house, but he doesn't enjoy the father's love at all either. Why? Self-absorbed. Can't let go of what he wants and what he doesn't have. So much so that he can't see the father's love to him beckoning to come like the other son so that he too can walk in his father's love. Brothers and sisters, my hope and prayer for you this year is that you would know the father's love in a way that you have not before. And if that is to be the case, it will be on your knees in prayer. Let's close our time. Lord Jesus, what a kingdom you've given us, what a life you have given us, what a love you have given us, and what a prayer you have given us. Communion and fellowship with your Father is ours, and the opportunity to live not as children of the world, but as beloved children of the one true God. Thank you for these things. In your name we pray. Amen.